0: The following resource is from LMPC.org and we're delighted to provide it freely to all. If you feel led to give towards the ministry of Lookout Mountain Presbyterian Church, we welcome you to do so at LMPC.org give. Please stand for a reading from selected verses in Deuteronomy chapter 5. And Moses summoned all Israel and said to them, Hear, O Israel, the statutes and the rules that I speak in your hearing today, and you shall learn them and be careful to do them. God said, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is on the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Observe the Sabbath day to keep it holy as the Lord your God commanded you Honor your father and your mother as the Lord your God commanded you, that your days may be long and that it may go well with you in the land that the Lord your God has given you. You shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, and you shall not steal, and you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated.
1: Well, good morning, and welcome again to Lookout Mountain Presbyterian Church. My name is Will Nettleton. I'm one of the pastors here, and we are delighted to have you with us this morning, especially if you're visiting with us or you're a guest. Special welcome to you. Glad to have you with us this morning. If you are just now joining us, you are jumping in in the middle of a study that we are doing. We've been in the book of Deuteronomy. And as we got to chapter 5, we've been slowing down to look at the Ten Commandments. And so we've been looking at those week by week, and we are actually now kind of coming down the home stretch; Only got a couple left uh, to get through, and we are this morning on the Ninth Commandment, which is commonly conceived of as, do not lie, which is pretty much the gist of the command. Do not lie. But as you can imagine, if you've been with us through this series, of course, this command, like all the others goes much deeper, goes much deeper to the heart of the matter, because Jesus told us that it's out of the overflow of the heart that our mouths speak. And so when we lie, when we tell untruth, when we bear false witness, we are showing something's going on with our hearts, So this commandment has something to say to us uh, on a deeper level as well. You can see our outline there in your bulletin. It's really similar to the ones that we've been using in the past few weeks as we've been looking at the commandments. We're going to look, first of all, at the intention of the commandment. What's the intent behind it? The meaning of the commandment, both negatively and positively, and then finally the hope for forgiveness and formation. So that's where we're going this morning uh, before we set out. Let me pray, and we'll ask God to bless our time in his word by sending his Holy Spirit. Let's pause and pray. Lord, we know that we don't live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from your mouth. And we know, too, that your word is no empty word. It's no vain word. It is our very life. So we have gathered this morning as the sheep of your pasture to be fed by you. Jesus, you said that you are our good shepherd and your sheep know your voice. And so I pray you would help us to hear it this morning and to follow it. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be pleasing to you, our rock and our redeemer. It's in Jesus' name that I pray. Amen. Well, my uh, senior year of high school, I had a phenomenal uh, English teacher, Mrs. Milton. It was AP English, which is remarkable when you consider that I grew up in Mississippi. So we've come a long way. You know, we we also have AP classes. We only had two. I think I took them, English and French. For those of you who are in high school who'd like to feel better about yourselves, I got a zero on my French exam, my AP French exam. (laughs) I did get a three on the English one, so... That one I did okay, and a lot of that was because of Miss Milton. Uh, That class really was transformative for me. I had always enjoyed reading, grew up loving to read, but that class was really the one where I started to see the magic behind stories. Um, It really was the first place that someone who knew what they were doing started unpacking the structure of stories and started showing us the different themes, uh, that there was more there than just pure enjoyment or entertainment, that there was a depth to many of the old stories. Ultimately, it was that reason that I became an English major uh, at Ole Miss. It was in many ways what helped me to love the Bible uh, as the greatest true story ever told. But it was also transformative for me for another reason, because Miss Milton had this tradition. Uh, At the end of every year, she would hand out class superlatives You're familiar with this idea, right? Like most likely to succeed, that kind of stuff. And so like our high school class did that. We had high school superlatives that we voted on. I was up for two of them, best personality and most talkative. You wanna know which one I got? Not the good one, right? I got most talkative. My friends voted me the most annoying person we went to high school with, is essentially what happened. But Miss Milton had separate ones. She had her own superlatives, and she was really creative with these because they were supposed to be an assessment of kind of what you were best at, but they were also meant to push you. They were meant to encourage you, but they were also meant to push you as you graduated from high school and went off to college. And so at the end of my senior year, Miss Milton gave me a great gift of my superlative. She crowned me the king of hyperbole. That was my superlative. You are the king of hyperbole. And I think what she was trying to encourage me at was, you know how to talk. You're a good storyteller. You can do that piece. And where she was trying to push me was, you like to tell a lot of stories that aren't true. You like to say a lot of things that aren't true. And I still have a nasty habit of doing that of exaggerating, of reframing stories, and short, of lying. Which makes this commandment particularly terrifying to me. It's yet another one that seems fairly simple, right? Do not bear false witness, tell the truth. And yet, like all of the other commandments we've looked at so far, when you begin to dig beneath the surface, you realize there's a lot more going on. So let's begin, first of all, just with the intention behind the commandment. And as we've been doing most weeks, we're going to be pulling from what the whole Bible has to say about these realities. And the first thing we see as we, as we kind of go across the whole Bible and, and look for this theme is that our God is a God who does not lie. One of the intentions behind the commandment is that we have a truth-telling God, and he intends to form a truth-telling community. This is why telling the truth is so important. Part of it is that it is in the nature of God himself. Numbers twenty-three, nineteen reads, God is not man that he should lie, or a son of man that he should change his mind. Has he said and will he not do it? Or has he spoken and will he not fulfill it? Or Paul says in Romans 3, verse 4, Let God be true though everyone were a liar. And in John 14 6, Jesus, of course, says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And so, in the first place, we ought to tell the truth because our God is a God of truth. It's who He is, and it's and He calls us to be like Him. But another reason the truth is so important is because how we handle it always affects the lives of those around us. It always affects our community. Notice the way that this commandment is framed. You shall not bear false witness against who? Against your neighbor. But God too, that's right. Jesus summarized the law by saying, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and your neighbor as yourself. And theologians will often point out that commandments 1 through 4 kind of help us with that vertical element. They point us to how we are to love God. So I have no other gods before him. Don't make graven images. Don't bear his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day. And then five through 10 address our relationships with one another, how we are to love our neighbor. But the ninth commandment is actually the first one where that n- word neighbor is actually used. It's implied in all the ones before it. There are lots of other people referenced who are also our neighbors, right? Honor your father and mother, all of that. But this is the first time the word actually appears in the Ten Commandments. The commandment itself is framed in the context of a courtroom. You shall not bear false witness. It imagines this judicial setting where your neighbor's on trial and you've been summoned as a witness, Now think about this. In the ancient Near East, witnesses are everything in their judicial systems. They're still important for ours, but they have no DNA testing. They don't have audio and video recording of things to reference. There's no fingerprint database. Witnesses are everything. And so the ninth commandment imagines a scenario where you're called to bear witness for or against your neighbor And it says you must not bear false witness. Why would it say that? Because, besides the obvious, because the life of your neighbor is in your hand. What you say will have significant consequences for them. Indeed, it will have significant consequences for the whole community. Think about this. Let's imagine a scenario where a crime is committed in our community, and you lie and say it was your neighbor, though you know it was not. Think about what all has just transpired, what all has been affected. Your innocent neighbor is affected, but there's also a guilty one who's gone free, who's learned how to get away with this crime. And if the community ever discovers that miscarriage of justice, they now have no confidence in the judicial system. They may also be tempted to manipulate it or to despair of ever getting justice for themselves. Things will happen to them that they will not even bother to report because why bother? No one's gonna do anything about it. How we handle the truth affects one another. Our lives are interconnected. And God wants his people to realize that, that how we handle the truth is not a private, individual matter, How we handle the truth affects the lives of our neighbors. In giving this command to Israel, God wanted them to be a people where truth mattered, where justice would be upheld. This was so serious that God actually gave them other provisions in the law to help prevent false witnesses. One was that in Israel, there had to be two witnesses against someone for the testimony to be considered valid couldn't just be one person's word against another, he said, she said. You had to have two. There had to be corroboration. Now, to be sure, that doesn't stop all corruption, right? Plenty of people are able to convince a second person to back up their false testimony. And so, another provision in the Old Testament was that a false accuser would receive the punishment due to the person wrongly accused if they were found out. So, if you bore false witness against someone and falsely accused them of a crime, and that crime that you falsely accused them of happened to be worthy of the death penalty. If you were caught in that lie, you would receive the very death penalty you were trying to get for them. God wanted Israel to be a place where you had the right to expect that your neighbor would tell the truth about you. That your neighbor would not lie. That's the intent behind the command. God is a God of truth. And he wants his community to be a truth-telling community. Now, what does that actually look like? That brings us to the meaning of the commandment. It's really easy to see how this applies specifically in a courtroom, right? And you may have the question, okay, so I get that. Like, how did we get to this part where it now refers to all speech, right? Everything that I say. Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5 seems to go on this little rabbit trail. He's been talking about adultery and divorce and anger and murder, like the big stuff, right? You think of like the big sins. And then all of a sudden, he starts talking about oaths. It's a little weird that he goes there in the midst of all these other things that he's talking about. Listen to this from Matthew 5. Again, you've heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it's the throne of God, or by the earth, for it's his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it's the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. The famous, let your yes be yes and your no be no passage. It's fairly common for the Jewish people who wanted their word to be taken seriously to swear in God's name or by some token associated with him. And the idea was, by invoking something associated or connected to God, you're taking this promise into the realm of the heavenly courtroom. You're asking God himself to bear witness to your promise. Like We still have a version of this, Right? as God is my witness. And Jesus says that framing is really silly because God is always your witness. He sees everything you do. You are always standing before the God of heaven and earth. You don't need to ask him to come bear witness. He already is. He sees all things. He knows all things. Everything is plain to him. And so Jesus says, live like that. Live like that is true. I think that's in part how we've come to the conclusion that this commandment doesn't just apply to earthly courtrooms. Every word that you and I speak, every action we take, is taking place before the heavenly courtroom. With God as our judge. And so this commandment is always in effect for every word that we speak. Okay, so what does that actually look like in detail? What are we getting into here? What do, we, what do we have to actually avoid? What do we actually have to do? I think this commandment means that you and I ought to live as if the God, this may be obvious to you, but I'll say it anyway, live as if the God who searches hearts can hear everything we say and think because he can and does. It means we ought to live as if, as if everything we say or don't say affects the lives of our neighbors because it does. It does. I think it means we have to stop playing with the truth. And that, of course, means we have to stop lying, but it also means we have to stop twisting words in ways that might technically be true, but that don't have true intent. Kevin DeYoung, in his book on the Ten Commandments, we've been using this as a resource. He has a a great paragraph on how we twist words. I just want to read this to you. Listen to this. He says, We know how to retell a story so that we're the hero and others are the goat, where we emphasize only the really mean thing they said to us, but say nothing about the hard and hurtful things we may have said. We're masters at passing along our own interpretation of events as if it were factual. Whether we realize it or not, especially when we're engaged in some sort of conflict, we intuitively know how to pass along information with a certain implied tone. We know how to leave out information and summarize long conversations in a way that makes us or our side look good and others and their side look bad. Don't think that spin is just what famous people do. We all spin. It's true, isn't it? I think this commandment means we have to stop gossiping, passing along information that we don't know is true just because we enjoy the drama of it. We have to stop slandering other people and assuming that we know their motives and their intentions when we don't. We are not mind readers. We don't know what we don't know. And we shouldn't act as if we do. Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 5 writes, Therefore do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness. And we'll disclose the purposes of the heart. Then each one will receive his commendation from God. God knows the heart of people. We don't. Uh, I will never forget my RUF campus minister at Old Miss, Les Newsom, saying, People are thinking about you way less than you think they are. Isn't that true? We don't get invited to something, and we think that the hosts must have sat down and thought, okay, let's start with who not to invite. Definitely not Will. He is a pastor. This is a party, not a funeral. He cannot come. (laughs) What if we were the kind of community that actually started assuming the best about one another and started giving one another our best? What if when your friend hurt your feelings, you actually went to them and said that? And told them the truth. And even said, hey, when you said this the other night, I don't think you realized it came off this way, but you hurt me. And give them the opportunity to say, I did not mean that, but I totally hear how you heard it that way, and I'm sorry I hurt you. Will you forgive me? Wouldn't you love to be a part of a community like that? That tells each other the truth that promoted integrity and transparency and honesty. Let me ask you this: The last time you sold a house or a car, how transparent were you about its flaws? I was thinking about this. When we sold our house in San Antonio to move here, we had bought this like beautiful. 1925 house, kind of near downtown in San Antonio. And uh, those of you who've had old houses will know where this is going. It had a lot of issues. There had been some settling in those almost 100 years. And so we had a lot of cracks in our drywall. The foundation was actually in pretty good shape, but there were some cracks. And so we brought someone in, right, to tape and float, to cover up the cracks. And in my head, I was like, well, we just want it to look nice for them, right, when they buy this house. But certainly when the pictures were taken and when people came through and saw no cracks, I also wanted them to assume this house is in better shape than it really is. Now, of course, there was going to be an inspection. They were going to get to know all the stuff that they needed to know. But I was, in my heart, trying to cover that thing up. Are we a community that that deals with one another honestly? Are we forthright with the truth or do we make people demand it from us? I, go back to that. I keep coming back to this example of offending our friends, but I think how often we just freeze people out of our lives for a while with zero explanation rather than addressing what's going on. What about at work? I mean, it's especially hard. I, I have a lot of sympathy for some of you in jobs where you're in sales. To tell the whole truth will lose you a sale sometimes. And yet as Christians, what are we called to? Unless you think easy for you to say, you're a pastor, it's kind of part of the whole deal, isn't it? Like, do not kid yourselves. Do you know how easy it is to get up here and avoid saying the things that I know some of you will find offensive? Even if it needs to be said? I was thinking this last week, I don't think I have ever addressed politics in a sermon here. Anybody want to guess why? And I mean, I could say it's out of wisdom, right? Pastors need to stay in our lane. We're not political scientists. There's some truth to that. But idolatry is our lane. I've been convicted this past week that there were times when I should have pressed us on that and didn't because I was scared. Because I wanted to be liked more than I wanted us to see that. To wrestle with it, to repent. Friends, I am a liar. And I suspect that many of you are too. And so that brings us, as we finish here, as we do every week in these commandments, what hope do we have? The hope for forgiveness and for formation. What is the hope for liars and hiders like us? It's in Jesus. Revelation 1 verse five calls him the faithful witness." the one who went to the cross because of false witnesses." You remember that? They arrest Jesus in the middle of the night and were told in Mark 14, "For many bore false witness against him." And the mark includes this little detail. Their testimony did not agree. They were operating within this framework. They had to have two witnesses. The testimony had to match up, and they couldn't find anybody. That could get on the same page as they were lying about what Jesus had done. And they keep trying to do it so they can convict Jesus. And finally, the high priest gets tired of it. And he just puts it to Jesus point blank Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? Now, think about what Jesus has, the decision he has in front of him in that moment. If Jesus tells the truth, he's done for. And if he does not tell the truth, we are. That's often what's at stake with this commandment. Moments where our neighbor will be devastated if we do not tell the truth, and we will be devastated if we do. It's exactly where Jesus finds himself, and what does he do? He tells the truth, he says, I am. I am. And they condemned him to die. As a blasphemer, a liar, a violator of the ninth commandment, the truth himself declared a false witness. And he did it all willingly, knowingly. Why did he do that? so that you and I can finally face the truth about who we are in our sin. That we are liars and find forgiveness for it in Him and find in Him an even deeper and greater truth than the fact that we are sinners. That we have a God who loves sinners and invites us into His family. That that is the deepest truth about who we are. And when that truth begins to work its way into our bones, it changes the way that we relate to the truth. We start to become the kind of people who do what Paul says in Ephesians four twenty-five. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. Or in Philippians 4, 8, finally, brothers, whatever is true Whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there's any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. Because we know the truth about who we are as sinners and redeemed saints, we can become the kind of community where we can tell one another the truth. Which means that we can both confront each other on sin... And call one another to repentance. And remind one another of our identity in Jesus Christ. That we are each beloved of the Father. That he is making us more into the image of his truth-telling son. Let us look to that son in hope. The one condemned to die as a liar. That liars like us may go free. Let me pray before we sing. Father, we thank you that you are a God of truth, and that the truth is that you love us. And we know that because you tell us, and because you sent your Son, and because you, Father and Son, have sent your Spirit to remind us of who Jesus was, that he was the truth made flesh. And so, Lord, would you change us? Would you remind us again that we don't have to live as liars, that we can be people of the truth? Would you make this community into a truth-telling community, a place where justice is upheld, where we trust one another, where the ties that bind us together are strong because we know what to expect of one another, that we will tell the truth. Lord, we can only do that if you work in us, and so would you do that? We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.